0: It was lovely that we sung some modern, some, some older stuff as well, and some of the older stuff like Jesus shall take the highest honour, that's what I grew up with. Uh, in Christian endeavour, if you ever heard the Christian endeavour, that, that was my training ground, and uh, Jesus shall take the highest honour, and majesty, and uh, all of those choruses as we called it, oh not honour oh, my all of those choruses that we called it were, were really uh, a staple of my worship experience really and even now, Gem and I uh, my wife and I, sometimes I remember doing the dishes, uh, we, we, we play a game, we hum different choruses and the other person has to guess what they are <laughs> try it, it's really good fun because while it sounds like the chorus in your head, that is not what comes out of your mouth and Jesus shall take the highest honour is one of the ones that we always do and we can never get through them without laughing, but that's, we just need to get out more, don't we? But it's lovely. <laughs> just a, another notice to say, it was on the, the, the rolling notices. But it may you think, well, this doesn't appeal to me. But next Sunday at three o'clock at Emmanuel Church is, is Billericay Civic Service. That the churches together in Billericay will be putting on with the councillors and, and all and the dignitaries and, and all so on and so forth. And, um, Reverend Paul Carr has really asked us to plug it in our churches. It's a, it's an important aspect in our community to show our community that Christ is central to who we are. And it's a service to thank God for all that he does uh, in the town. And, uh, last, time they did it the attendance was so low that they've really had a fight with the council I think to be able to put this civic service on so if the churches don't turn out to it we're going to struggle to do it again and it also says if as a church we don't turn out to it actually we don't really care Um, I mean I apologise I'm speaking but That may put you off, but, you know, I can give you a book, A Thousand and One Things to Do During the Boring Sermon, and you can just come along with that. And there's food after, there's a bun fight after as well. I think you have to RSVP or just turn up or whatever, but three o'clock next Sunday, um, if you're able to attend, it would be really good to show the community where we live that God is central to who we are as we worship and praise his name. I wonder if you know what it's like to live the whole of your life having people watch you and scrutinise you. I lived in a church man's once which, which was, uh, it was on a, main road, a fairly busy road where directly opposite was a street that came down to so the junction of that street was opposite my living room uh, window. And people used to see me in church and say things like, you were up late last night. Meaning that, that they saw that my light was on. I, I didn't feel I needed their permission. Uh, I didn't think I needed to do that. Um, I was 30 years of age at the time and I thought I could, you know, I could stay up when I was late. And what made me laugh was the fact that they were up late as well because they saw me. People used to see me in church and say things like, um, did you have friends over yesterday? So there's quite a few cars on the driveway. And people would walk past the manse, stare in the big bay window, and wave at me as I'm sat there watching television. So, in the end, what I did was I swapped the dining room and the living room over. It wasn't as good a living room, but I swapped it over so they then couldn't see me, other than seeing what I was eating for my tea, if they were walking past. I felt like I was a goldfish in a goldfish bowl, and the living room window was that goldfish bowl. But that was nothing, was it, like yesterday, compared to that. The eyes of the world were on the UK yesterday, and especially King Charles and the royal family. None of us, even people saying to me that I was up late last night, have experienced that type of scrutiny with the eyes of the world on you. Did you watch it? Did anybody go up there to London No. I didn't, by the way, either. But as a country, Britain does love a bit of pomp and ceremony, doesn't it? It was watched by millions worldwide. Uh, Apparently, if these figures are right, and I've obviously checked them with Google, so they must be, but (laughs) it was watched by around 350 million people worldwide. Now, to put that figure into context, if a programme on British TV gets around... Five million people—that's doing seriously well. So I don't know if you watch Britain's Got Talent, and we watch Britain's Got Talent. Yeah, yeah. Did anybody see it last night, yeah. Mister? Did you see Travis, the Welsh guy, singing? Yeah. I was baptized with his mum. Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, that's got nothing to do with my sermon, by the <laughs> way. But. <clears throat> but so if they get about five million people watching it. That's a really good viewing of So, 350 million people worldwide. And that's just watching it live. Some people will go back who couldn't see it, but will watch it later. I remember seeing Prince Charles as he was then, when I was in infant school. So, that's one or two years ago. Uh, I don't know what the visit was for. I don't know why he was coming to where we were. Uh, He came to Pontypool and New Inn train station, which is a really tiny uh, train station where when I was growing up, about two trains a day, that's the kind of village that I grew up in, and we got this trip from, and all the schools went and we had the flags and whatnot, and we stood, I remember it was raining, it was South Wales, and I just all I can remember is us waving these damp flags, training our necks, because all Prince Charles did was get off the train, into a car and drive up the ramp of the uh, train station and away he went to whatever it was. He was doing. So we're there for hours, craning our necks just to catch a glimpse of him in the car as he drove past. Now I have to say, and be honest with you, I'm not a royalist. But I also don't feel we should abolish the monarchy. I'm interested in them and the lives that they lead and the rich history of the British monarchy, and yes, I do enjoy watching that documentary, The Crown, on television, I know it's not a documentary, uh, The Crown. So I did watch the King's Coronation yesterday. I was also thinking about Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and thinking, wow, that's a big gig, that is. That's a big gig, that is. He's had the Queen's Funeral and the King's Coronation. I bet he didn't see it much on Friday night. The eyes of the world were, were watching him. And during the Coronation Service, the elders... WhatsApp group pinged with one of the elders' daughters asking so is Gary the bishop of (laughs) Billeriki? And then her other daughter genuinely asked is that bishop of the Greek Orthodox Church is that Wayne? (laughs) His beard was better than mine so I don't think it is, mate. And while Gary and I are none of those things it was great regardless of what you think of the monarchy to see the Christian faith at the heart of the ceremony. And actually, it is at the heart of the monarchy. It was great, wasn't it, when she was alive to see the faith of the Queen and how she seemed to be more vocal in her faith as she got older. She was a great witness. And I'm not as sure about King Charles' faith journey, although he does say that his faith is deeply rooted. That was seen in the act of the coronation. The, act, the, the coronation service is explicitly Christian. It has God at the heart of the words that were said and words that were proclaimed by those in the congregation regardless of whether they believe those promises or not. And the coronation reminds us that first and foremost we all stand before God. And our lives are an audience of one. And secondly... We are all anointed by God to do that which he has prepared for us. And King Charles, like his mother before him, said that he believes the role of king is a calling upon his life. He was making promises uh, before God and there was a recognition that he needs God's power to help him uh, in that role. So I believe he's aware that God has called him and we'll pray for him later later in this service, we're told in scripture to pray for our kings and those in authority and we ask God to give him all that he needs to work out his calling. But I wonder what you make of it all. How you view the king and the royal family. Maybe you're a royalist and you just loved it. You've got the merchandise. You were glued to your TV yesterday. That's the camp my mum would have been in and she was alive. She would have got all the mugs and the spoons and the, the, the doilies and the goodness knows what and it would have, she would have had the flags up and everything. She absolutely loved it. I remember the morning after Princess Diana died, my mother phoned me. I wasn't living at home. She phoned me. I picked the phone up and her opening words were not high away and how you. it was Diana's dead. To which I responded, who's Diana? My mother did not take too kindly to that, but I hadn't turned the television or the radio on and she just said Diana. I thought, have got a, a relative that's called Diana? Is a neighbour called Diana? She loved the royal family. But maybe you're the opposite end from being a royalist. And instead of watching it, you went out for two reasons. First, you didn't want to watch it, and secondly, you knew most people would, so the roads and shops would be clear, so you thought, I'm getting out of here. You took advantage of it. Whether wh- Wherever you stand on the royal family, for us here today, it raises the subject of kingship, which is what our worship has been getting us to think and praise and, and uh, in our hearts and our minds to think about. You see, if you think about it, King Charles III is a king with a lot of status, with a lot of influence, but actually not a lot of power. In contrast to this, as Christians, we serve a higher king who, in the UK at least, has not much status and not much influence, but an infinite amount of power. And it raises the question, well it does for me anyway, which king do we serve and follow? The king with a small k or the king with a capital K? And by this I don't necessarily mean do we serve and follow King Charles III. But what are the things in our lives that have kingship over us? Those things that we serve and that we follow and that influence us and we put before King Jesus. Do we live in the knowledge that with King Jesus anything is possible? Friends, do we even truly believe that? You know, I'm not sure we live our lives with the full truth that with King, Jesus is, with King Jesus, anything is possible. And because I think that's often seen in how we live lives with, with lack in our lives when we find ourselves in difficult situations. But if we were to read Psalm 23, we read that the Lord is our shepherd and that with him we what? Lack nothing. Which means with him, anything is possible. Yet, very often, as humans, when we come up against situations in our lives, when we, we we don't always live in the truth of this, we often put more value and emphasis on the kings of our world, turning to them when we come up against things that are beyond us, or we find ourselves in difficulty. But if we do that, we find that we constantly live with this sense of lack in our lives. And I want us to say this morning that with King Jesus, Because he is the ultimate king, all things are possible. I think the reason we we sometimes struggle to see and call upon all that King Jesus is is because we're human and our natural tendency is to be swayed by these false impressions of power. We have a skewed view of what's important. My wife Gemma and I watched a film on Friday evening called Ticket to Paradise. I don't know if anybody has seen it. It's with George Clooney and Julia Roberts. And yes, it is a rom-com. And I thought to my wife, we'll watch that as opposed to watching something with somebody getting shot or a thriller or something like that. I guess it's jumping out of his seat. Watch something that's fairly. It's only it's only 90 minutes. It's not two and a half hours. It's nice and easy to watch. And the premise of the film is that this couple, George and Clooney and Julia Roberts, Uh, they're divorced, they've been divorced for many years, and they have a daughter who's just finished her degree. She goes with a friend on uh, an elongated holiday to Bali before she comes back to start this job with a prestigious law firm. She's a lawyer, and obviously it's a rom-com. Once in Bali, she meets a man, who's obviously a seaweed farmer, and they fall in love, and they decide to get married. Complete opposite lifestyle to what her parents live and expect her to live when she comes home. She tells her parents, who then fly to Bali, not for the wedding, but to stop the wedding and to break up this couple. Because in their opinion, she's she's throwing away an opportunity for a glittering career and money and prestige and power and all of that kind of stuff. The things that human beings value. I won't say any more in case you want to watch it. I don't want to give the spoiler at the end of the film away. But it's a rom-com, it's Hollywood, you can tell what happens at the end um, but it and it's, it's quite a funny film but it highlights that, that actually we do place value in our society on these, these, these things that the prestige, the work for this firm over that firm don't, don't settle down yet, you need to earn money, you need to do this, you need to do that we, we, and those things become the kings of our lives Now, there's nothing wrong with a good career. Nothing wrong with earning money. We all need that. We live in... This is the world we live in. But is that really what we think is the most important thing in life? Is that truly more important than a healthy and stable relationship with somebody that you love? Is that really more important for us here today than a relationship with King Jesus? You see, we can get easily swayed by the wrong kings in our world. As I watched yesterday, I was intrigued at all the pageantry, at the, the, the carriages, uh, the, was it the diamond jubilee carriage that was the last one that the, the Queen had made in her reign, so uh, as opposed to going to Westminster Abbey in the gold carriage, Charles and Camilla decided to go in this as a nod to his mum. And that's obviously a small carriage. That's only pulled by six horses. Whereas the one he came back in the gold carriage, which apparently is worth about three million pounds or something like that, that's so heavy and uncomfortable, might I add, so they said, because uh, it's got no suspension in it because hundreds of years old, that had to be pulled by eight carriages. And then you had all the other horses lying in the streets and guarding around... Uh, the king and queen and the other members of the royal family and, and then you had all of the, the footmen and women all dressed in their regalia the, the, these clothes that look unbelievably uncomfortable especially the shoes and they, they, it's all there and as they're walking by members of the public are singing the nas, national anthem and all of this kind of a huge display of power a huge display of, of wealth of, of, of the monarchy And as I watched that, I couldn't help but contrast that with another display of a king riding triumphantly amongst his people. We read from John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come in for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel!' Jesus found not a carriage, but a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. At first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It's an amazing procession. There's shouting, there's celebration amongst the crowd, but there is no expensive golden carriage pulled by six or eight horses. Instead, we simply read in verse 15 Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. No security presence, no physical human display of power, and yet we're told to not be afraid. Our king is coming. Not in a carriage, but on a donkey. The simplicity of a donkey symbolising peace, not war. The daughter of Zion referred to Jerusalem or the Jewish people. And for us today, it speaks to us that because of King Jesus, we do not need to fear whatever we face in life. We do not need to fear. We read in 1 Timothy 6, I'm charging you before the life-giving God and before Christ. You took his stand before Pontius Pilate and didn't give an inch. Keep this command to the letter and don't slack off. Our master, Jesus Christ, is on his way. he will show up right on time. His arrival guaranteed by the blessed and undisputed ruler, high king, high God. In other translations, this reads king of kings and lord of lords. He's the only one death can't touch. His light is so bright no one can get close. He's never uh, been seen by human eyes. Human eyes can't take him in. Honour to him and eternal rule. Oh yes. Friends, this passage from Paul to Timothy gives a charge to Timothy to hold fast to serving and following King Jesus. Not the world, not the kings of the world, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who is so powerful, death cannot touch him. Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus will come at the most perfect of time. And I I would want to expand that theology and say that King Jesus shows up in our lives at the most perfect of times. When often the man-made kings in our world let us down. The King of kings has power like nothing else in the whole of the world. There is majesty to King Jesus that is far greater than his majesty, King Charles III. You know, we read in Revelation 19, Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, in contrast to King Charles III, and I really do wish him well, but while King Charles III is king of the UK, Jesus is king of all kings. There were, was it, members from from 200 different countries. They were interviewing some queen, somebody, I don't know what her name was, um, and her husband is the king of the country that she's from, and there would have been other royalty there from across the world, And yet, Jesus is king over all of them. He's king of everything. He is the ultimate Lord. This means he rules over all things and all people. Nothing happens without him knowing. And the amazing truth is that Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And his power has implications for our lives. You know, uh, the reality is, King Charles will have will have little, if no, impact upon my life personally. Even as the supreme head of the Church of England, he has no impact on me as a Baptist minister. I'm a radical dissenter. That's what we are as Baptists. We dissented. We pulled away uh, from the state church. So King Charles is not the head of the the Christian Church. He's just the head of the Church of England. So while important for us as a country and we pray that Charles will have a deep revelation of God in his life, his kingship does not impact me or help me every day. But the king of kings, now that's another matter altogether. Any of you play chess? I haven't seen chess. You play chess, but I haven't seen chess at Sunny Days. I've seen Rummy Cub and Cheating at Scrabble, but I haven't seen anything else and gambler's corner at the back there, you know. But if you know anything about the game of chess, you know it all comes down to when the king on either side can move no more. Once the king is trapped, the winner, winning side declares checkmate and the game is over. There's a painting that once hung in the Louvre Museum in Paris, painted by Frederick Moritz August Wright, and I've got his name wrong, but there we are. Today, the painting is popularly known as Checkmate. It's now in private hands, having been sold in a Christie's auction in 1999. Have we got it on the screen? There we are. Has anybody ever seen that painting? Yeah, some of you have. Some of you are more cultured than the rest of us. There we are. (laughs) This painting depicts two chess players. One is Satan, with a weird hat who appears arrogantly confident and has this very smug and wise smile on his face. The other player is a man who looks a little bit cheesed off, a bit forlorn, down in the dumps. He's fed up because he's losing. Satan has him in checkmate, and in this game, if Satan wins, he wins the man's soul. According to legend and probably fact, the story goes like this. A a chess grandmaster came upon this intriguing painting in the Louvre Museum alongside other famous arts such as the Mona Lisa. The chess champion stares and stares at the chessboard for a long, long time, and then suddenly he steps back flabbergasted. It's wrong, he shouts. There's one more move. It's not checkmate. The king has one more move. Though the devil seemed to be the obvious victor, he was, in fact, not winning. The man who thought he was losing was actually winning. And according to the arrangement of the pieces left on the chessboard, his king, of the full-on man, had one more move, and that fateful move would make him the winner of the game, defeating Satan. So the grandmaster called the creator and determined that the title checkmate did not fit the scene because the forlorn looking player actually had the ability to defeat his opponent though he didn't realize it yet. His king had one more move. And you see friends, as great as King Charles may be, he cannot change our lives in the way King Jesus can. And any time we feel beaten, we need to remember that with King Jesus, there is always hope, for the king always has one more move. We can win, even when we don't realise it. So at the Bible, this game has been played. The Israelites found momentary freedom only to face the formidable Red Sea with Pharaoh and his armies in hot pursuit. Yet the king had one more move and parted the Red Sea. Daniel was lowered into a den full of hungry lions for defying a tyrant king and standing up for his faith. Yet the king had one more move because the the lions weren't hungry that night. A nine foot tall fighting champion named Goliath called for a winner take all, one on one, fight to the death to settle the war. A little shepherd boy steps up and takes him on. This is going to end in carnage. Yet the king had one more move. The thousands in front of Jesus were hungry and the disciples thought all was lost and found it laughable that the young boy would bring his packed lunch to Jesus. Yet the king had one more move and everyone was fed with leftovers. A thief on the cross thought all was lost that he met Jesus that day and realised that the king had one more move for him. Jesus was tortured, crucified and buried for three days and everybody thought that's it. But the king had one more move. We could go on, but the truth is, the overarching theme of the Bible could be summed up in that the king always has one more move. For a moment, think with me about the full implications of this wonderful truth for us in our lives. So often in life, we consider the world to have won. We consider the world and its circumstances to beat us. We consider the world to be in a mess with war, violence, a deadly pandemic, unemployment, struggling marriages, depression, isolation, and so much more. We can become disillusioned. People begin to feel lost. We look for direction, but often end up looking at other kings. It looks like we're experiencing checkmate, It looks like the enemy is going to defeat us, but we need not fear. The game's not over. Here comes your king, friends, and the king always has one more move. Our king always has one move left. Our lives and futures are in his hands. The Lord is the only king who can never be defeated. His rule will never end. Even at the end of our days, when our bodies fail us, and we take our last breath, all is not lost, Because the king has one more move, it's called heaven. Eternity with God for all who believe. You know, the only reason we had the coronation yesterday is because King Charles' mother, Queen Elizabeth, as great as she was, was human. And so her reign ended as her body gave out. That is the only reason we had that coronation yesterday. And the only reason she had the coronation is because her father's body gave out and so on and so forth, and I'll say no more because my histories are not that good. (laughs) King Charles, they say, is the oldest monarch in British history to ascend to the throne. I said to my father-in-law, who I think is 76 this year, was it a gig that you'd want, Bob? (laughs) He said, no, I'm retired. I don't want to take that on now, at that age. Everyone else who's come to the throne has been younger than him. And people are talking, I find it interesting, about the coronation as a a once-in-a-lifetime occasion. And yes, it will be for many people, but I hope and pray for my children. I actually hope and pray for myself, it won't be. Because if he's 74 now, and if I live till 80, I kind of think he'd be gone before me. And so there will be another coronation. So it's not a once in a lifetime because King Charles will not live forever. All of his grandeur, all of his splendour, all of his palaces, all of his money will not stop him coming before his maker one day. We may proclaim, long live the king. I think in one of the, the, the phrases yesterday, it said, may the king live forever. And Gemma and I looked at him and went, well, that's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> you know, he's not some some zombie, well, I don't know, it's up to you, but he's not some, some weird figure that's going to live forever. You know? He stumbles and falls. He, he'll get a cold, he gets a cough, he gets tired. He's no different to the rest of us. His tummy rumbles when he's hungry too. And he rings a little bell and the food comes in for him. There's only one king who defeated death. There's only one king who is fair. There's only one king who has one more move in our lives. Friends, are you serving that king? Are you following that king? Do you ever feel like your circumstances have beaten you? A situation arises that you just haven't got the moves to conquer. A family problem that's way too difficult for you. You've run out of options, you've run out of resources, your strength has gone. The prophecy that quoted in the passage we read from John reminds us to, in those moments to not be afraid, because friends, the king always has one more move. Ever feel like Satan has you trapped? The enemy tempts you with that temptation that you just don't seem to be able to escape. The king always has one more move. Ever feel like a failure? You've messed up or, or you compare your life to others and you feel like you're failing. Jesus the king always has one more move. As we come to a close, let me share some of my life with you. Over 30 years ago, my life was in a mess. All my own doing but a mess nonetheless. I thought all was lost, not just in my career, but in my relationship with my mum, my friends, my church family, and more importantly, my relationship with Jesus. I had messed up, and I thought, how on earth can Jesus love me now? How on earth can he ever bring me back from this situation that I find myself in? Would it be better if I was no longer here? But you see, friends, the king always has one more move. And as Jesus brought me out from that season in my life and started to help me rebuild, I found out the truth in life that even when you feel you've ended up at a dead end with Jesus and you feel like the game has been beaten, there's always another unexpected way out even when you feel beaten and you cannot see it there's always another way out because King Jesus always has one more move. Over 30 years later, I look at my, where my life is now and the journey of the last 30 plus years and I think that in my life, wow, the King has had so many more, one more moves. Every time I like felt beaten, Jesus has shown me something that I didn't see before. It sometimes feels as if Jesus has opened a door when when I first looked, there seemed to be no door there. And friends, here's the wonder of this. Because I have seen Jesus use one more move in my life so many times, when I face another chess game where I feel beaten, I know that the king still has one more move for me again. I just have to push into him and allow him to do that which I can't. So let's give the things and people that would have some kind of kingship in our lives their proper place. Yes, Let's offer them support and value and pray for them. But let's remember that they and the things of this world are always lower than the king of kings. Always lower. As we realise that, as great as these other kings in our lives are, they're not the king of kings and lord of lords. They're not Jesus. They can only go so far. Because with King Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the blessed and undisputed ruler, high king, high God, we can always go further than we ever thought possible. Why? think you've got it now. Because the king always has one more move. In a moment, we'll come around the communion table. This is the ultimate proof that the king has one more move. Jesus has been killed. His friends' lives are in tatters. Yet this was no checkmate for the king had one more move to completely win the game. And for us here today as we celebrate and remember in communion that Jesus is is alive and this means that our lives are never ever out of options. If Jesus can rise from the dead then in our lives the king can always have one more move. So as we share together May we remember this and bring the King who has one more move into our lives, into our communities, into our situations that seem to be all lost. If you remember nothing else from today, remember that the King always has one as we pray, we'll pray for ourselves and our situations and then we'll pray for King Charles as Scripture tells us to. Father, we thank you. We thank you that with Jesus things are never lost. We thank you that with Jesus we don't have to fear anymore. We don't have to fear that Satan will weep. because you are on the throne, King Jesus. Even though it doesn't always feel like it, Satan does not have the freedom that he likes to deceive us into thinking that he does have. He doesn't have the power that he likes to deceive us into thinking he does have. And that with you, the game is never over. Because if we will push into you, if we will trust you, you always have one more move. You can make ways where we can't even see. Because you are King, Jesus. And Father, we would ask you to, to speak to us in our hearts right now about that. Whatever our situations are, whatever our struggles are, whether those things that we face in our own lives and our own relationships or whether the things that we see in this, your world, remind us today, especially as we take this bread and this cup, remind us of your power that is over all things. That you are the true king who rules. And may we allow you to rule in our lives. Father, as your word tells us to pray for kings and all in authority, we do that now as we pray for King Charles. Almighty God, King of kings, Lord of lords, we pray for him. Thank you for a monarch who has described his faith as deeply rooted. We ask that that is true. We ask that those roots in you will grow even deeper and to be the source of much fruitfulness to your glory. Thank you for his decades of service on behalf of young people, for his eager championing of housing that nourishes family and community, for his practical work and passionate advocacy for the protection of your creation nationally and globally. But Father, in this new phase of service, may he know you and the depth of your love ever more richly. May he look to you for wisdom, to know when to speak and when to not. The courage to choose what is right, even if it's unpopular, and for your strength and peace in times of pressure and storm. May he be a source of refreshment and hope wherever he goes, whether to palace or factory, field or office, in this land and in the Commonwealth and beyond. Where wounds are unhealed between nations and communities, work through him to bring reconciliation and where friendship already flows enable him to forge even deeper bonds of trust and cooperation. Father, in this moment may we too recommit ourselves to the lives of sacrificial service to one another. To the communities to which we are called but above all to you. To the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and to the realisation of your coming kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Father, for King Charles and Queen Camilla, we would just ask that you would bring reconciliation and joy in their family. And grant them daily refreshment for your word and the mighty power of your Holy Spirit. And for your glory, May it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.